ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Welcome to another edition of Hard in the Paint with David Grubb. And um, this is a very special one for me. Um, I've gotten to talk to this gentleman a couple of times over the years. And today, this is really our first real in-depth conversation. And the gentleman I'm talking about is, is Coach Bryce Brown of Edna Carr. And I am an Edna Carr alum. I have been on the sidelines for a couple of his state championship wins. I've seen some of his games. Uh, but the biggest thing for me as an alumni of Edna Carr is just watching what he's done with this program, not only from a football basis, but from what it means to not only the community of Algiers, but to the city of New Orleans as a whole. And I have a lot of respect for this man. And I think that off season is a perfect time to talk because we don't have the week to week stuff of games. We don't have the week to week stuff of classrooms. We're in, we're in a time where we can reflect and get to know him a bit better and get to know what the car program is all about a little bit better. So I welcome to the program, Bryce Brown. It's it's a pleasure to have you. Appreciate it. Appreciate you for having me. Um, uh, I know it's been a long time coming. It got a little conflicts with scheduling, but uh, glad to have glad to say uh, so we could work it out and you know talk some ball, talk some life. So it should be interesting. Now you and I are both. And the car guys, this is this is home for us. Um, and there's a certain feeling amongst Edna Car people. We're different. Mm-hmm. We're different, mm-hmm. and we come from all over the city. Um, we are we come from all different types of walks of life, but there's a unique bond that I find among Edna Car students and Edna Car graduates that I don't find in other places that I haven't found in other places. For you, I was part of the first class. Mm-hmm. For you, by the time that car tradition came and you were building it up, what did Edna Car mean as a student? And then now that you're on this side of it, what does it mean to you? You know, I think even for me as a student coming in in seventh and eighth grade when it was a junior high attached to the senior high school, you know, it's always been about family. And I think uh, now it's still that, you know, sometimes families can be dysfunctional. Sometimes families can have disagreements, but it's how you come together in the end, and I think that's what CAR does best is come together in time of need, in time of struggle, in time of, you know, positive things too, you know. So, you know, I think the word family um, is such, is, it, it might come off as cliche, but, you know, but people affiliate call with pride all the time, but I think a better word would be family. But no, not to the word pride, but family is the, the biggest key for me. I think when people look at the word pride, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes pride has a negative connotation. When we talk about, you know, pride comes before the fall, mm-hmm. um, taking false pride in things that maybe you didn't accomplish. Yeah. But it's, to me, Cougar pride is a collective pride. Mm-hmm. I care as much about my brother or my sister who's in class yeah. as I do about what I achieve. Mm-hmm. The band is just as important as the basketball team. The, the science club is just as important as the football team. All those things, um, it just, it never felt like at Carr, no matter what group you were part of, that you were an outsider. There are folks who, you know, yeah. But there's a place for you to belong, and you're going to get some support. And I think that's what, to me, that's what Cougar Pride has always meant. Yeah, and um, over the years and through the pandemic, it's been unfortunate that uh, 
you know, we've gotten away from some of those core values from the old building at 3332, but, you know, um, in conversations with Dr. Washington and some of the alumni that work to, you know, we're trying to continue those things, rebuild those things back. You know, I'm not saying that CAR is this perfect entity or this perfect school to where we do everything excellent. We do have our shortcomings, but I think the, the biggest point is that um, that we're trying. We're trying to still sustain something that was maintained over so many years. And it was maintained through so many years because the core people like Bill Robinson, John Heiser, uh, Joseph Wildbacker, uh, you know, Miss Villavaso, you know, all of those people were there so long um, who maintained those core values and instilled them in you in a, in a young age. And I think that's the part that we're kind of missing here is that the pride was put into you when you were in seventh and eighth grade, and then you carried that through the senior high school. So hopefully we can get back to that. What would you say is the biggest difference just in the transition coming from the old building to the new building? And, and you know, students' expectations change. You move out of one place, you know, and you move into this brand new, mm -hmm. shiny facility. And people can get brand new too, you know, whether it's yeah. administrators, students, whomever. <laughs> What's been that challenge like? Uh, I was saying, number one with the old building, it was just in the walls. You know, the winning, the tradition, uh, the love for school, the pride of school, the love for community, that was just in that building because it was, how many years, 60 years were in that building? I mean, come on, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to even even think about that what what was accomplished at that school can even be accomplished here with all of our state championships it was one at the old campus right because every day you were reminded about your past uh, you know those state championships hung in the wall those great players uh, were immortalized you know at that old school even in the gym you walk in and you you go back to the 1960s and their pictures are still hanging on the wall. Their accomplishments are still there. So for us, how do we get that at 4400 Jeremiah Avenue has been the task at hand through a, a worldwide pandemic, through a world who is governed by social media, is, not, is, is governed by what you want from it, not what you need from it. So that's been the struggle. Um, but I would think that we're close, we're close than, than what the, the average car alum would think, you know, because that's your toughest critic is the, the car alum who graduated from 3332. So, you know, we still striving for, for that same excellence that you, when you walked in the door, you saw two crests that's on the wall, that's mounted on the wall, that was Blue National Blue Ribbon School of Excellence. And, you know, we're trying to still achieve that here at this new campus, but I'll tell you what, it's been a task. Yeah, that second to none is, is a high bar to live up to. Yeah. Because there's only one thing that that is, that's number one, that's the only thing that there is. Um, but it's aspirational. And, it, and to me, it was never detrimental. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think some people can fold under that pressure when you say the goal here is to be the best. Yeah. Um, but I also think that you can internalize that to mean you have to be your best. Mm -hmm. Car can't be the best unless you're at your best. Yeah. 
and whatever my best is may not be the same as yours, mm -hmm. but if we're all reaching that level, we're gonna accomplish something. And I think that's one of those mindsets that, that has been difficult yeah. to translate, because I think students, community people, now are so focused on the flat numbers of whatever it is, whether yeah. it's in the classroom, whether it's on the field, whether it, no matter where it comes from, they're only measuring success by one standard. Yeah. And you know you have a lot of young men who come into your program from freshman to senior year. They may never turn into a four-star, five-star product, mm -hmm. but I'm sure there are a number of stories that you have of successful guys who made it through those four years oh, were yeah. still bench warmers, but you got everything you could out of them. Yeah, and I think um, that's the, the culture that, that is built when you win so much, right? You determine success with wins and losses on the field, not about you know, how many we graduate, where that, that should be flipped. You know, what's not talked about is the success of the student, the student athlete who does not continue to play football on the next level. And we've had great success with that. Um, but it's not, it's not shined upon and it should be, and it should be. And, it, and you know, that may fall on us. We may need to put it out there a little bit more to showcase those, those athletes who, who are continuing a professional level, right? So we can take the run of that as a school, as an organization, to say, okay, we need to give them their flowers too, you know, just because I'm not this superstar athlete, I'm not Aaron Anderson, I'm not Racing McMahon, you know, so, but there are those, those kids who are doing great and becoming doctors and becoming pharmacists and becoming lawyers and stuff like that you know maybe they need to be celebrated too that might be something we yeah. could do together yeah because i mean I, I love putting those types of materials together and doing those things and mm -hmm. that might be something for us to work on in the future yeah you, you 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 just can't imagine how many times you get a call from a player who just wants to help who's not playing college football you know if they own their own uh, nightclub if they own their own you know, grocery store, you know, those things are happening. And, you know, it's not just here at college, it's at every school. Yeah. You know, and I think um, that's probably what we need to look at as a society is, you know, we put the, the athlete on the pedestal um, a little bit more than the entrepreneur. And a lot of these young men and women are figuring these things out earlier and earlier mm -hmm. because we live in this hustle culture and, yeah. and being an entrepreneur is a way of survival. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think we see more and more of them pick it up at a younger age. And we do need to celebrate that because they're applying a lot of the things that they get on the practice field or in a competition, yeah. that stick-to-itiveness, that under, overcoming adversity, those things of understanding also that there's procedures and steps to get to where you want to mm -hmm. go. They picking those things up and applying them in regular life, and I think that that you're right. That that's something that we could promote more. What's interesting to me is when you took over as head coach. It was a very very interesting period because you had the Watney era when it got built up, and then we go with Coach Jaluk, love Coach Jaluk, and it was always close. Got one, but it was you know it was always close right there coming in, and then it was a little you know period with Nathaniel Jones and, and things just kind of seemed a little bit off for a minute. Mm -hmm. You enter into that, when you took over, what was your thought about taking over the program first and foremost, being handed that mantle? And then how much of what the vision that you had experienced as a student did you take? And then how much of it 
for what you wanted, what you maybe not maybe didn't see as a student, or what you wanted to see for the next group? Did you apply when you started building your philosophy for what Edna Carr football was gonna look like under Bryce Brown? Yeah, the first thing was when Mr. Clay offered me the job, I didn't want it. You know, I wanted to stay in my role as, you know, the assistant head coach under the head coach because I thought then that you could impact more being the guy behind the guy, which for the most part is not an inaccurate statement, but at the time I was being a little naive with the pressure of becoming the guy after the guy after the guy, right? So when you had Carl, you all those coaches that you named had achieved going to the state championship game. So my first vision, and I was at Nick Foster's house, at the time, when Mr. Clay called me, he just called me on the phone and said, man, listen, I need you to be in my office at 7 a.m. And I was like, oh, man, this man about to offer me this job. <laughs> and I'm about to tell him no again. It was Nick who convinced me to take it. It was him who convinced me to take it. And brainstorming and, and thinking about things to be fresh and different, it wasn't really fresh or different. It was a combination of Coach Wadney, Coach Jalou, and Coach Nathaniel all together because I got a chance to work and be around all three of them. So I, I had the opportunity to pick and choose what processes, what procedures that I wanted from each. And then with my mind, what I saw as a branding opportunity took advantage of it, of being around all those great coaches because that was something that all of them weren't uh, afforded. They, they, they only knew each other because of acquaintance, not because they were in the closed room with each other, but being coached by Coach Watney, then coached by Coach Jalou, then working for Coach Jalou, then knowing Coach Nate before he was named head coach, and then working under him you know, I had a I had a better opportunity. I had better resources, let me say that. And then I had a great AD, I had a great principal. I had all kinds of people behind me. I had my first year was still Mr. Hodgson, and it was Mr. Clay. And as those years kept unfolding, we kept winning. You know, based on number one, how we were branded called football. And number two was how do we make Edna Carr High School and Edna Carr Football the same? And then we won four straight. A lot of people may not get what you mean when you say how to make Edna Carr High School and Edna Carr Football the same. But you know, in a lot of places where football is good mm-hmm. or whatever the sport du jour is, mm-hmm. those kids can get separated right. and they live their own life. Mm-hmm. How important is it to you to make sure that your students are fully formed students and that they are not viewed as yeah. just football players? What we did back then, we incorporated, uh, and this was a Mr. Clay idea, and um, uh, Emily Ferris, who was the assistant principal at the time, and uh, Ms. Miller, who was the assistant principal at the time. You know, we were in constant talks about how do we bridge that gap between the coach and the teacher? Right, where the coach, where the perception is, 
The teacher just thinks about academics and the coach think, just thinks about athletics. So what we did, we had a program that Ms. Ferris had wrote a grant for called 21st Century. And we, we got the teachers to run study hall. So if you were deficient in math, we had a math, we had two or three math teachers that you could go to at any time during study hall. If it was English, if it was social science, if it was science, that's how our team GPA that year probably was a 3.0 because the teachers were given that instruction. So let's say if you took algebra one and your teacher didn't offer study hall at the school, you still had two or three math teachers available an hour before practice even started to to get extra work and to finish homework, to do things like that. So that's how we started bridging the gap. We bridged the gap between continuity. We bridged the gap with communication. We bu we bridged the gap with how you come into the school is how you enter into the locker room with that same discipline. The expectations when you sit in the classroom and when a teacher asks you to finish your assignment, the same accountability was presented in football to where, okay, if you're given a scouting report and you're supposed to turn this in Thursday before the game, you're supposed to do that, right? So, you know, it took a lot of effort. It took a lot of people, you know, people that people don't get to see, you know, people behind the scenes. But I think that's the main thing is the continuity that at the old building that we had was the same teachers every year, year in and year out, who, were co who started coming to me and saying, Coach, what's, what's our, what is our study hall schedule, right? We had teachers willing to let us use their classrooms, stuff like that, man. You, 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 don't, you, don't, you don't miss something until you lose it, right? So we still working. What was the biggest surprise in moving up that one spot that you learned from being assistant to the head coach to being the man in charge? That your phone don't stop. <laughs> I'm sitting here with you right now about my phone is vibrating, right? So the availability and all of those coaches that I mentioned prior to the previous head coach that car talked about accountability the most. So what I took from that was, you know, let's let's make this thing into triple A. You know, accountability availability availability and being authentic right so if we have those three things not only are we bridging the gap with the school we bridging the gap with the player now they know our ex expectation they know where we're from they know the struggle that we've been through but also being available to hear their struggle to know what they've been through right so you know it's it's different yeah, but it takes a lot of time it takes a lot of time where you know i tell people all the time you know, time don't stop when you're the head coach. You know, it's, it, you always have to be, be available. <laughs> I don't think I realized, and, and Bill Robinson is like my mentor. Um, I don't think I ever realized how much time he put in yep. for us. You know, I would see him six o'clock in the morning, you know, driving his van to school. Yep. Sometimes he'd pick me up and bring me. Um, and then, of course, I was with him at night when he would drop us off after practice and it'd be nine o'clock at night. Yeah. I didn't realize he still had hours left yeah. to do. I didn't realize he still had other, others of us that he was checking on, mm. you know, guys that he coached on other teams and AAU ball and yeah. stuff like that. And um, 
that that amount of sacrifice that it goes into, I don't, I, I don't know how many people really have, in your out of 24 hours of a day, how many would you say belong to you and you alone? Uh, when you sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and when you sleep, you know, the, the, the crazy thing about it is a call can wake you up quickly. You know, a circumstance could change that peaceful night into one where you have to become available. And that's a, that's a tough lesson that every head coach probably had to learn. It's not something that somebody can teach you. It's something that you have to go through, right? So, you know, not complaining about it, you know, because it, it has it has its perks because you know a lot of things. So when this kid comes in and he has an attitude or he has, um, he seems down, you know why, right? So it, it, it helps you connect with that aspect of like you say, Coach Robinson, the first thing he told me when I became the head coach, we were sitting in the cafeteria at the old school on lunch duty. And if you went to the old school, you knew you had, to, you had two lunches then and you had the hour in between. That's right. Right? So Coach Rob had his line and nobody messed with Coach Rob's line. So I used to go sit with him. And the first thing he said was, Bryce, you have to reach him before you teach him. And that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned from any coach, right? And then watching Coach DeLuke do it was, because, you know, I was at his hip. You know, I was on his hip, attached to his hip for eight years. And he used to just say, man, come with me. And then it will pop up to this house because this was happening with this family. I'll go to this house because this this incident happened here. And I was like, man, how you do this? So in 2012, I never forget going in his office. He said, man, I'm tired. Right? That was ten, I was at 10 years. Right? He said, man, bro, I'm tired. And then, boom, we won a state championship. And then he got offered the job at La Tech. Yep. And... He, he texts me. He said, meet me in the middle of the field. You know, I hope you don't mind me telling the story. <laughs> but we went to the middle of the field and he said, he said, listen, I'm going to Louisiana Tech. And I said, he said, what you think? I said, go. Go, because your heart is telling you to go. You know, you, you know, you never, you never want to. You never want to not listen to the, the blessings that God is trying to give you. And look at him now. And something was in place. Mm -hmm. he, said, he left it, and it was still in good shape. Yeah. The, the foundation was there. Um, and then when, when you get to it, it's, you know, those years post-Katrina, because I was also part of Algiers Charter when it started reopening the school. And I remember what the students were like. I remember the stories. Mm -hmm. Kids living in their gutted out homes by themselves because their parents didn't come back. Mm -hmm. You know, went to school all day, then got worked a shift at Popeyes, got whatever sleep they could get, and then came back in in the next morning. And we have a whole generation of those kids who grew up like that, without the services, without having those other things around them in the city. Nobody ever really asking them, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. 
you know, just they just had to get up and go do it every day. Wake up, go back and keep trying to live your life. What I noticed is over these years, the roles of, of coaches in, in some regards have had to become a bit more, have had to extend themselves far beyond the walls of their campuses, beyond the, the reach of the, the and, and be more involved in what is actually going on um, in the lives of the students. Not that they always have it. We know coaches are always taking that interest. Mm-hmm. But there's been a very personal toll that it takes when you have to invest that much yeah. in students. How do you balance that, that joy of wanting to come in and teach and reach people and, and educate them and coach them? And then at the same time, know on the other side, there's only so much you can do mm-hmm. on their, in helping them outside of that. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's two things. It's the amount that we as coaches are trying to put in. You know, what, at what limit, what is your limit? And for the, for the kid is, what are you willing to share? Right? Or for that family, what are you willing to share? What are, what are the things you really need help with? Right? So we've done a good job of that, especially when we were um, coming after Katrina. Right? When I was with Coach Salute, we did a great job of... Ooh, we was on we was on the road. We was we was hitting it running. We was going to this house, this house, checking on this family, this family, you know, sitting down and talking and meetings after meetings after meetings and you know, you as a coach, you, you we were spending more time worrying about the well being of this family or this particular, you know, case of this kid more than actually game planning for a game. Right? So I learned early coming from Grambling. You know, where you you being coached by mostly African-American coaches, right? They were the same way. You know, they will call you and say, listen, you finished that, that homework assignment? You finished this? You went to study hall? You did this? You know, being on time, being accountable. You know, I learned most of that at Grambling, the procedure of procedures, right? Mm-hmm. Because I came from a head coach who was in corporate America in Melvin Spears. And he taught us a lot about accountability and timeliness, right? And the penalty or the consequence of not being on time, right? And, you know, you try to instill that that stuff here, but it's been very difficult to maintain it, right? Because staff changes, and I've lost some guys who had coaches and (laughs) coaching in college and... You know, I was asking myself the other day, I said, man, I mean, how often can you keep replacing these quality guys, right? And it's, and it's getting more and more difficult because, you know, I talk to Nick every morning. He's the head coach at Santa yep. Cruz, and they're going through the same things over there. You might think, oh, okay, maybe they're Catholic school. You know, hey, they have this. No, they're the same type of kid. So we talk about a lot of different circumstances and things that the kid's going through and, you know, what methods he using, what methods I'm using, stuff like that. And it's universal, man. It's universal. And the one thing that has changed now is the inability for kids to ask for help. Right? Because we come from the generation of a closed mouth don't get fed. 
they don't understand that mantra. They don't understand that saying of a closed mouth don't get fed. They expect what they shouldn't expect, right? So it becomes a little difficult because you're, you're bridging this gap between, okay, you're not a real man if you don't know how to communicate to a generation that doesn't know how to communicate. They can type, but they can't talk, Yep. right? So our generation, we're speaking. They don't speak, they type. How do you bridge that gap? And you know, that's been the task. Growing up in Algiers, I know what it was like for me when, when the 70s, I got here in the late 70s, went to Havens Elementary, went to Rosewall for middle school, you know, Carford Junior and Senior High. And you could start to see the shift in Algiers slowly but surely over the years that it was a little less comfortable and it was getting a little more rough around the edges. It's gotten a lot more rough around the edges over the last decade or so. There's a lot more. I mean, we lost a couple of students when I was at Carr, but it wasn't mm-hmm. like it is now, mm-hmm. where you kind of fear for it. Yeah. Um, you know, and you're an Algiers native. Yeah. What's it like, you know, watching that? What's it, and and are there times when you feel like you push it against a tide, maybe that's that's too big for to push back against? You know, it's ironic you ask that because me and T. Howard was talking about that. You know, Coach Howard is the defense coordinator, and he's a car alum. Coaching in three different decades now has really been eye-opening for for me, and he's been coaching for four different decades. So the change has been if back then, if you were to say, a kid got shot, or a kid is in jail, it was a shock. It was like a blow to your, your soul. Like, wow, I can't believe it. Now, you still get that reaction from the adults, right? But with the kids, they are so numb to it because they have become not accepting of it, but they've adapted to it, right? And that's the craziest part. You know, where you could lose a student and they mourn for about four or five days and then they suppress it and then boom, it's like, okay, we're back to normal. But what is that normal? What is that normal? And you 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 fight. You're trying to fight. Is more people is more people doing the wrong then there is people fighting it right or if or if we fighting it we're fighting we're fighting this one situation and not the whole thing as a whole right so i think that's the part that we missing you know and i talked to you know noel and landry the stuff that he's going through over there you know jerry phillips at eastern frank dance at 35 coach addison at that call it's the same thing or at these schools where they lose losing students and to where it's become normal. And that's the sad part. So you as a coach, it's only human nature for you to question, you know, are we really impacting how we should be, right? Yeah, we winning games. We winning a lot of games. And 
Yeah, we're we're saving a lot of kids. Because if you look at the ratio, you know, we're saving more than we're losing. But who determines what is a fair ratio when you lose a child? There is no fair ratio. It's not any acceptable ratio when you lose a student. You could have we could save a million and lose one. To me, I would spend more time focusing on how do we lose that one than how we save those millions. And that's been a you know, a problem in some things that I'm dealing with too. You know, how to see the glass half full sometimes. But as a coach, you know, that's not how we process things. You know, we've been to 10 championships, but I tell people all the time, yeah, we've been to 10, but we lost five of them. And those are the ones that stick. And that's the ones that stick. I can tell you about each and every one of those losses, right? And I can't tell you about any of their wins. I can't tell you about, I know that we won it in that particular year, and I know the kids who are on that team, but I couldn't tell you a defining moment in that team, right? That that said, oh, that that's why they're champion. But I can tell you a defining moment in the teams that we lost. So when you flip that to real life, when you're talking about losing a child, ain't nothing like seeing um, a mother who lost a child. When you have you ever felt and have that recognition of a kid in the locker room and said. I can't get this to this one. I can't get to this one. So many. So many. And we battle with that in staff meeting all the time. All the time. You know, and I can imagine for all these other schools, they battle the same thing. You know, here we call it one foot in and one foot out, right? So if you have a team that has 80 kids that have two feet in, and you have two or three kids that's one foot and one foot out. In our mindset, we're thinking about the three kids who are one foot in and one foot out. What can we do to get that other foot to step in? And sometimes it's not fair to the 80 who, whose feet are in, 100%, right? But how do we do that? We try to reward them with saying, Listen, we're not talking to everybody, but guess what? When the, when the head coach speaks, you think you're talking directly to you, right? So what we try to do is we don't want to lose them. We, want, we don't want this kid to quit. We want this kid to, to stay in it, to not get involved in street life. You know, we try that hard. And look, we're not bat- batting a thousand with that. Right. You know, we've lost. I mean, it's life. Yeah, we've lost some kids. and But when you coach at a school like this, it's going to be it's gonna be blown up, right? Which it should be. Because that's what happens when you have success, right? But on the flip side of that wall, it's a family out there who's lost a 16, 17-year-old kid who's still grieving, who's still mourning. And for some parts, they still blame the school, right? Because at, at times, these kids spend more time here than they do at home. And what we had to understand as coaches here, 
we can't control the decisions that they make and when they leave here. What we can do is provide them these tools that they put in these two in their toolbox and to apply it once they leave here, right? And for that grieving mom or that grieving dad or that grieving family, they don't want to hear that shit. You know, people want to know why. And you can't always answer that, though. And we can't always answer it. You know, I tell my staff every time when you're dealing with a player and you come to the top, or if you're a teacher and you emailing the CEO and telling on another teacher, or if you are a custodial worker who goes to the supervisor, every time that you go to the top, you want something done in your favor, right? You want, you want this person to be fired, you want to be reprimanded, you want something to happen. Right, you want to answer, you want to resolve. Right, and people now, they can't accept that they're not in control all the time, right? So, how are we, how, how we flipping that teaching the kids? You know, they think they're in full control. Right, they think they have this, this thing called life all figured out. And they haven't lived in. So, for us as coaches, you know, the battle and the daily struggle of of that is the price we have to pay for being so successful in a particular sport or sports. How do you deal with personally when you go and invest your time, when you invest your life, your emotions, your, your compassion, all those things, and then a tragedy happens? Mm-hmm. And you know you have the job of leading your coaches, grown men, and you have your job of leading these young men, and you have to be the face of that. Mm-hmm. You have to present strength, but at the same time, you also need to teach these young men how to emote, yeah. how to feel, how to grieve, how to process and move on. But you've got to do all those things yourself, mm-hmm. both in public and in private. Right. How does that over the years, how does that impact how you feel about your profession, how you feel about how long you want to do it, how, and, and like you said, ultimately what the outcome, not the championships, but what, what the outcome, what you, what you leave behind in your legacy is. Yeah, I'll start with the last question, the outcome I want to leave here to, to leave it better than what I found it. And, and I tell people that answer a lot, well, they say, well, you could have picked any year that you that you coach. Well, in my eyes, we're still missing on a few things, right? And the things that I see, the average person can't see, right? So how do you deal with losing, even for this year, we lost Kiran, right? Four days later, we lost Jalil. Two days later, the person who is accused of killing Kiran, you lose him to prison. So it's loss after loss after loss, right? So nobody's winning in this case. And those families extended beyond yeah. that. Yeah, that, that they are they are searching for answers. Where did we go wrong? Where did we as a whole go wrong um, as a community, right? 
as a school, as a community, you know, did we overlook this? Did we do this? Did we do? You know, number of questions come up, right? That's that's human nature for questions to appear. You know, how do you stay strong for those families and the players and the coaches and the school? It's a choice that you basically made when you took the job is to be strong, right? And to create stability uh, when we're in an unstable situation, right? You know, because for those weeks, we're like, oh my God, what's going on? Blah, blah, blah. You know, so how do you, how do you stop that from, how do you stop that, that wood from breaking? You need strong people behind you. And I'm fortunate enough, I have a strong principal behind me in Dr. Washington, very spiritual. And she's very open and she's very available. So she helps in whatever resources we may need, she provides it. You know, especially with our assistant principal, Mr. Wright, who works directly with that lens. He helps um, T. Howard, you know, the assistant coaches. If you're talking about the social work staff, the counseling staff, you know, those those type of things aren't what the average citizen can see in these walls, but it's very available. You know, we did a healing circle where the kids got to express their feelings with all of the loss with, with that stuff. That helped. And, um, you know, Kiran's mom came and spoke to the, to the team. You know, his funeral was here. You know, and I think at that time when we lost Kiran, we lost Jalil a couple of days later, and I was talking to his mom and going to his balloon release and stuff like that. By the time the funeral came, I was I was really stuck, right? Like, we doing it again, right? Well, for everybody else, it was a Saturday, but for this particular family, they're burying their son. So it's not just Saturday. It's another day where we, we lost another child unfortunately, and it's not just happening here. It's happening everywhere. But we're a society who looks at, look at social media and what people have, right? And we sometimes overlook what we have and it's right in front of us. Until we lose it. How do you... Has that has that been have there been times with you with you where you've tried to measure it and just say, I don't know how much more I have. Well, I was saying I'm done. Yeah, when you're like I'm ta- I'm tapped out. I don't have any more. I've given everything I could oh, possibly give. That's that's natural. I'll be lying to you if I said no. That never crossed my mind. But you have to you have to practice what you preach, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're back against the wall, what you gonna do? You gonna you gonna quit? Or you gonna keep fighting? Right? In my situation, my back was against the wall. So if I'm demanding or asking my team and my coaches to keep fighting, the least I could do is make the decision to keep fighting and not quit and don't surrender. Right? So if you live by what you what you're preaching, then it becomes a a little bit easier, right? Not saying that making that decision is easy. Making that decision is very difficult when you're dealing with loss of life. 
But when you are in the relentless pursuit of saving a child, the answer is easy. The answer is do your job. Do what you're called to do. Right? Your calling is to get this message out. Well, my, my calling now is to implement it and to do it. Right? So we're doing it together in different ways, in different fashions. So that's how we have to accept our jobs. Right? And these jobs are not signed by contracts. These jobs are assigned by a person that's way higher than all us. Right? So when you don't accept your job, that's when you get angry. And you know, too, and we talked about this when we were walking in about being mission oriented people. Yeah. You know when you're off your line. Yeah. You don't, it, the, none of it feels right. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you're walking in something that is not intended for you. Mm-hmm or uh, in a direction that is not the direction that you, in your heart, know you should be going, that tears away at you too. Yeah. So I'd imagine you'd have to feel, part of what keep, is part of what keeps you here knowing that there's still things that you say, not, not on the football field, there's no more accolade. You got coaches of the year, you got championship trophies, you got undefeated seasons, you got back-to-backs. You've done all those. The things that you have left to accomplish have nothing to do with stats, no. scoreboards, but you still feel like you got things to do here at Edna Car. Yeah, and they might have somebody out there that's listening right now and say, man, that's bullshit. That's all he worrying about is the championship, right? But I don't have time to listen to that shit. I don't have time to get into a debate with somebody who doesn't know what they don't know, right? So that's all I know is what our true mission is and if you ask the kids, they'd probably tell you anyway. They'd probably tell you the same thing. Oh, man, Coach Brothers wasn't worried about that loss. It's, it's all about how you do it. Right? And how we lost. We lost giving our best effort. And that's the least that we could do. Right? You can't win them all. It's a game. At the end of the day, you know, somebody's going to try to find a, a person to point the finger at. And that's a part of it. Right? And that's a part of success and failure. But the sun coming up the next morning. And what we got to do? We got to get these boys into college. We got to make sure they pass in these classes. And we got to get them to to where they aspire to be. Right? So we don't have time to... You don't have time to waste time. (laughs) (laughs) Is that why you think maybe... You are, you are well respected amongst coaches, but your name is not like a household name amongst casuals. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you you don't self promote. That ain't you. You ain't you know you ain't out there. I'd rather they not talk about me when they're at home. <laughs> <laughs> because look, I'm not in it for that, man. Listen, they got a lot of people out there who love car, and I have accepted that there are just as many people who hate it, right? Man, it was insane when it was coming out that we were going to the Catholic League. We weren't saying anything. We never called the LHSA and said, put us in the Catholic League. Right. Never did that. I can sit here and look at you face to face, man to man, and tell you we never did that. We never filled out any paperwork. We never, you know, gauged the interest of the other Catholic schools. This was other people who wanted us there. 
and fortunately enough, they they put us in there due to some rule with mileage, right? So right. how far we were from the Jefferson Parish League to the Catholic League, whatever. It's all good. We're going to play them anyway because the other school's not going to play. So, I mean, listen, whatever. We, 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 we good. We, we don't worry about none of that. But everybody has an opinion on it. And it's a good thing I don't see the opinions. You know, because sometimes, you know, I could, I could give you, I could give you a response that's, that's wanted. I could give you a response that's needed. And it could go left with me sometimes. So that's why I choose not to be on that type of stuff. Right? So people's stigma of car is like, oh, it's a white school. They still think that. Yeah. And <laughs> it's 98% black. Two percent minorities. Probably the percentage is probably even higher. They're more Vietnamese. Yeah, come on, have, come on, man. But we don't have time for that. We don't have time for that. You know, if we win in the Catholic League, man, good. We did good. You know, the players they accepted that task and and they accomplished it. The coaches, they I mean, they got the players ready. At the end of the day, it's all about the players. The last couple years in this country, since the start of pandemic, we've kind of had a lot more conversations about race. Mm -hmm. And look, we know New Orleans, and I've said this about New Orleans and Louisiana in general a long time, is that we confuse stagnancy with tradition. And we allow things to stay the same because that's the way that they've always been, for better or for worse. And I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of pushback in some ways. We're seeing it from legislature. We see it from... Um, in educational circles, you see it at, that, you know, the opportunities that, that a lot of these kids are asking for, and we see it on, the, you know, HBCU level, we see it at, at there, that the pushback there as HBCUs have started to become more prominent again. Mm-hmm. In talking with young black men, and there are specific conversations that you can only have with young black men, how do you get them prepared for, and, and I mean, quite frankly, you have to put an armor on to go out into this world as to both be fearless in how you present yourself because you have to be authentic, like mm-hmm. you said. You have to be who you are and be unafraid to be who you are. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, have the ability to navigate a society that has a whole bunch of unseen potholes and trap doors built just in for you. How do you have those conversations and how do you help prepare? those young men for that type of adversity that they're going to deal with. You know, I think that's more done on an individual level uh, when you're talking about the kids and what schools that they're picking and stuff like that, uh, when they're talking about race and the level of play, because all of that is tied into it, believe it or not, right? So, but I could, I could tell you this, you know who's out there grinding to get these, grinding to get these players? HBCUs. I spend most of my day talking to a head coach or assistant coach from HBCU now, more than ever before. And we've signed 20 plus kids in the past, probably in the past six years to HBCU. But those, those schools are now investing in our kids, right? It's not just, yeah, it's a mixture of transfer portal and stuff like that, but it's it's all it, it it has something to do with a sense of pride too. I have a starting safety 
and he's been off about numerous amounts of school. The most excited he's been is when he got off from Jackson State. That tells me we're preaching the right thing. It tells me that not only are we doing the acceptable job of teaching them about race and culture, but the values of HBCU education and HBCU athletics, because there are very prominent people who went to HBCUs athletically and academically. You know, I come from an HBCU. So a lot of times, you know, some of the running back at Prairie View, Ramon <clears throat> Antoine, you know, he was picking from a plethora of schools, and he picked Prairie View based on race and culture, right? And sometimes for a particular kid, it might not be that HBCU fit, right? But there are plenty of options out there. And when you discuss with these kids about race and how their life is going to be outside of campus, if they're choosing to go to whatever school, if it's a big-time SEC school, a big-time uh, Pac-12 school, Big Ten, you know, how is the lifestyle out there? Because we took a trip to USC two years ago, and the first thing that the player said was, man, where all the black people at, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's different for them because we, we, we are in a school full of 98% African-Americans. And so, in a city where their general interaction is, yeah. the white folks they run into are either teachers, yeah. policemen, mm-hmm. or store owners. That's it. Like your neighborhood is black folks. Right, that's it. And a lot of them have never even, and you and I both know, yeah. I know I graduated with high school from cats who had never left the state. Yeah. You know, never been out, not even to Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that whole world perspective to take yeah. them outside and to show them a world where almost everybody's white yeah. is a huge culture shock. Yeah, no doubt. We had, we had players who went to, you know, predominantly white schools who transferred to black schools because that's what they want. We have kids now who are considering HBCU because they're factoring in uh, being comfortable. You know, being around race, but you know, and it is the other side to that coin where you need to be diverse and you need to be open and you need to be different types of people, right? I believe in that holistically, right? But for them and their parents, you know, that's a household type thing. You know, what we can do is make it available to show them the different types of schools. You know, we might go to Southeastern for seven on seven. Then we might go to Southern. Then we might go to Troy. Then we might go to Alabama. You know, so that's five different levels of play, but five different sceneries too, culturally. To have to be aware of their options, and I think that's such a big thing is that most kids don't understand that there are options. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been conditioned to look at one thing. Yeah. And it's like either this is the goal, and if you don't reach that one place, then, then you have failed. And like you said, what we thought might have been our fit at 17 years old, you ask a seven, 16, 17, 18-year-olds to make decisions on where they think the best place for them to live is, and they've never lived away from home. Yeah. That's a very difficult decision. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I know how I made mine, but I had a, a, both of my parents were college-educated people, so they were able to help me with that decision. 
And when you don't come from that, when maybe one of your parents went to college and other didn't, or both of them didn't, and you're the first, and we know, we know there's a lot of first generation of college students in these groups. Yeah, without those options, without knowing that there's something else too, mm-hmm. you, you, you are more likely to make a bad choice. If I only got one choice, right. then that's the one I'm gonna take, and that might not be the choice for me. Right, and then they have to start all over, especially when you're making that wrong choice like you're speaking about then a lot of times they lean on coming back to the high school and starting back over again. Or especially if it's athletically, you know, coach, you know, try to hit this coach up for me, you know, um, I'm transferring. But you know, the key for me is not if you transfer, if if you finish, is if you walk across the stage, no matter what stage you walk across. Because what are you leaving for? I think that's always the question for me. If somebody wants to transfer, and again, I think kids should have the right to transfer. Go to, you, every other student does, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you don't find the right fit for yourself. But are somebody running you off? Or are you choosing, this is not the place for me. All right. I need to be someplace else where I can do the things that I want to do. And, and I think that that's such a huge part of it too, is I don't, you hate to see when students feel like they've been run out of a place. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think there are programs, and you know that there are collegiate programs where it's a numbers game. Mm-hmm. I'm bringing as many as I can, and if I feel like you ain't gonna cut it, I'm not worried about you because I got six more behind you. Yeah. But you can't afford to do that here. Yeah. You don't have time to do it because you're losing. You're still losing, and I think, like you hit on, the reason why. And. Sometimes we might accept their reason why. Sometimes we might say, oh, man, that sounds, you know, like you need to rethink it, right? But at the end of the day, it's on them as individuals, as young men and women, to make decisions for their future and what makes them more comfortable. But sometimes um, being uncomfortable helps them, helps them adapt to different lifestyles, different cultures, different people, right, different food. Uh, different languages, right? You know, so, you know, sometimes that helps. And I think most times it helps, right? Because if you're stuck in one place and you've been this way for 17 years and you think that this is this is all that life has to offer, you know, you have to be able to have a lot of courage to step out of your norm because it, it takes a lot of courage to move from New Orleans and then move to Dallas, Texas. Two, two different worlds, right? So you gotta have courage to do that. And, you know, we're finding that our students have a lot of courage. You know, we're walking in the hall, college you're going to is FAMU, right? Uh, North Carolina a you know, so it's different. So it, it, it's refresh, refreshing too. Let's say over the next five years, if you could design this out and say, um, you know, n- not just athletically, but what would you like to see accomplished here, either in concrete ways, something that you want to see established at Car or in the city, um, the way we deal with athletics and academics? Um, what would you want to change in that structure? Mm, I would say, especially, you talking about academically? Yeah, like how we integrate athletics and academics in this in the city in the state because you know we still have this very big you know we see with the LHSAA and and, mm-hmm. and how it's dealing with select and non-select I don't think that's for the benefit of the schools at all it has not benefited the students yeah. in the least 
I think it's hurt them competitively. I think it's hurt their opportunities. I think it's hurt coaches mm -hmm. in their opportunities to work and, and learn from each other and, 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 and compete. I would say the rigor um, in the classroom and on the playing field, uh, if you're talking about select, non-select, putting it back together and having one true trap champion in one class um, in the rigor of academics where, you know, like, why would not teach the kids to write in script anymore? You know, that's crazy to me. But then we ask them to sign a document when they're trying to open a bank account. They have to put the signature, right? So, you know, it's kind of counter-teaching. You know, what are we, what are we doing? The real world is expecting you to learn how to, to know how to sign your name, and then here we are not teaching it. Right, in the real world, it's saying that is everybody can't win; they're losers. But then we have all of these divisions and classifications in football where there's nine, eleven, whatever how many championships they have. Teams right? making the playoffs with one win. Yeah, is is it? But when we go in the real world, everybody can't win. You have to be able to deal with losing, right? So that's what I would say: the rigor of of the academic part and athletically. Have we seen the bar set too low? Because I've seen, you know, I, I watch the conversations in Baton Rouge when people go up and say, let's look, let's raise the GPA a little bit higher. Let's make it a little bit higher. Uh, or let's raise this level a little bit higher. To me, look, test scores are starting to, we know test scores are starting to be less in vogue. We've seen some of the, a lot of the top universities are taking SAT and ACTs out of the equation. Mm -hmm. But those grades and your, your activities still heavily weigh. And the types of classes, like you talk about those life skills, the types of things, mm -hmm. we know that hard skills are becoming more and more important in the workforce. Can you operate a computer? Can you do some programming? Can you do the, can you write? You have to be able to write all those functional things. And still we also have this kind of uh, positioning of, of what a collegian should look like rather than understanding what post-secondary education truly is. Because I know you have a lot of students who could be, like you said, business operators yeah. who want to do, or do heavy machinery, who want to do this, that, or the other. Mm -hmm. But that access still isn't there for them now. They've got to wait and wait and wait while a kid who's on, who wants to take AP English, that's available for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it's, to me, it seems, again, if it's, there's just this, this, this connectivity between what students are actually in the, in the, in need of mm -hmm. and what people are comfortable in giving them. Yeah. And particularly in a state like Louisiana that is so rural, that is so poor, and that is so black, that it's very easy to get along with giving the minimum and saying if they don't make it, that's on them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think we have those conversations with kids every day based on off of you know going to college not going to college right when we went to car it was all about what college you going to what college you want you going to and then don't come back if you ain't finished <laughs> right now we have a class of what 260 probably 160 of them don't want to go to college they want to go pick up a trade, or they want to go straight into the workforce, right? So are we making those kind of aspirations available to them? 
is the question. Well, it's the battle of what we want them to do and what they want to do, right? So that's the that's the tug of war going on right now. That's how you see suspensions going up. That's how you see acting out in classes more because they're not interested in the work. But do you still have to have uh, high school education? Of course, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you know that sense of education and continued education needs to still be promoted. But on the flip side, we do need to make it available for kids who don't aspire to go to college or university after they leave high school. It's only fair, you know, because in in other lights you, you've been in the, you've been in the rules for for other walks of life. So for this one. You know, maybe it should be more of meeting them halfway. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I've always, you know, in as a communicator, the first thing they tell you is you got to reach people where they are. Mm-hmm. And we have put, a, it seems as if we put a level of shame on particularly young black students who, who say that they're not on a college track. Mm-hmm. And there's no shame in that. You can be educated and not have gone to college. Yeah. You, like we said, post-secondary education comes in a lot of different forms and facets. You got people out there with these riverboat jobs getting six figures a year. Right. They didn't go to college. Mm-hmm. You got people working in refineries getting six figures a year. Yeah. They didn't go to college. Right. But those are skills and those are honorable jobs, but we're not in them. Mm-hmm. Young black folks are not in them. Right. Because they've not been exposed mm-hmm. to them. They don't know about it. So that's a continuous fight to me, is to get those resources into these schools in a New Orleans, in a Baton Rouge, in, in areas where there are high concentrations of poor black people, and saying there, there's other options because we're playing this all or nothing game. That you're either gonna be, you're gonna walk across stage and go to another college, or you're gonna end up in jail. And that is no choice for anybody to be able to make at 15, 16, 17 years old. Yeah. Who can, who, I know I did not know that I'd be doing this at 22. Mm-hmm. I did not know that I would be a communicator on this. I knew I wanted to talk. <laughs> but to tell me that I had my vision figured out at 22, I, there's no way that was possible. Yeah. I don't think you saw yourself no. when, you on the, when you're playing at Grambling. I don't think you were looking up and say, I'm gonna be coaching my old alma mater yeah. for more than a decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, that's a continuous fight. Where we're doing as many college fairs, we should be doing just as many career fairs, right? So you can you can hit the whole the whole spectrum, right? So I'm not saying we, we do that here, you know, have college fair and career fair, but you know, maybe we need to make it even bigger, you know, to where we, we're doing college trips, make career trips, bring them to the refineries, bring them to these places so they can be exposed to it, so they can talk to these professionals and say, listen, I was once you. I was once standing here saying I didn't want to go to college. And then look where I am now. Right? And it's going to require some form of continued education, either in that craft or in that field or whatever. Right? Because we're bringing them to the colleges and then they're talking to people who are educated through the college system. Right? So meet them halfway and bring them to these places, what we're speaking about, so they could meet people who are in a different kind of profession who didn't go to a college or university. Imagine. To me, it's a little too simple. And maybe that's why they don't like it. 
I think it is simple, you know, and, and I've worked on and off with education for like 15 years. And I think that the problems, the solutions are a lot simpler than we make them out to be. It's just that there's there are people who are invested in keeping it this way. There's folks yeah, who it's make tough it. for a college educated person to tell a kid, listen, don't go to college. They feel like, I mean, I think it's not the thing that a politician wants to say because you feel like it's not going to get you votes. And I think it's the thing that people want, don't want to say because they feel like they don't want to invest in the infrastructure either. Because mm -hmm. if I'm going to say that you can have the opportunity to go work in a refinery, then I need to help build a lab in your high school yeah. so you can start making sure that you have that chemical background, that you know how to work with some of these raw materials mm -hmm. that, that you're prepared. Schools don't want to invest in that. It's a lot easier to put a computer in a room yeah. Not that they don't need it, mm -hmm. but it's a lot easier to put a computer in every classroom and say, we covered that, we got technology, we got Wi-Fi through all the building, and everybody's testing to go on track to college, and that and all the measures that we measurements that we do are how much what percentage of your graduation class goes to college. Mm -hmm. Well, five years from now, what are we talking about? How many of those who graduated from high school that went to college got their college degree yeah. or failed out? How many of those who went to post-secondary got an actual job? We're not following up. We're doing this in the short term of just get them out and yeah. get the number, but we don't really know what's happening or care in a lot of sense. And I'm not saying you and I, mm -hmm. I'm saying the, the state, the systems, they're less concerned about the after than they are with what the numbers are up until. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I would agree. I would agree. I would think, um, you know, with the state testing and all of this stuff, you know, more has being put into that right then to to really think about what what does this child want to do right we're so worried about the the eye leap and the leap we we are we really worried about listen jane over here does not want to go to college she wants to be a, a hairstylist are we giving her the resources to become successful right now? To understand how to get a business loan, yeah. to understand what it takes to, 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 to lease space, to understand what it takes to hire staff, to put a payroll together. Those are things that can be taught in high school. Yeah. We know this. <laughs> and it's just, it, it bothers me because I think that there was a sense at some point when we weren't graduating enough kids from high school who were African-Americans and sent them to college that everybody said, you gotta go to college, gotta go to college, gotta go to college. But we neglected all the types of learners and there is no one size fits all. You know right. that. You can't teach everybody, you don't treat every player on your team the same way. There's a kid you gotta kick in the butt, there's a kid you gotta pat on the back, and then sometimes there's a kid you gotta drag by his shirt and say, come on, I need to pull you. Yeah, that's, that's Coach Rob all day. Every child, every player, every student, Gotta be treated differently based on the need. I know, you know, like Taurus and I were teammates, and there was no, Rob could not have treated us more differently because mm -hmm. we were in different places. We needed different things. Mm -hmm. And, um, but we both love him the same. That's it. And that's, you know, somebody's gotta give you what you need, not what they wanna give you. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's so important and it's so critical. If somebody were to, to ask you to say, ask you, who is Bryce Brown? I know it's easier from the outside for people to, I could get 20 people to tell me who Bryce Brown is. Who is Bryce Brown? I would say one of the most straightforwardest people you ever meet. <laughs> and sometimes this, it comes off as like you're a bullshitter, right? Because you're being so straightforward. 
right? And that comes with because you don't have time to be trying to figure it out. Let's talk about what needs to be talked about, and if we could compromise and come to a resolution, let's do that. If it's not, then you go your way and I'll go mine. Is that why your demeanor is so much different than a lot of coaches you see? Because no matter what the situation is in the game, the play happens, you turn to your coach, turn to somebody, you make the next call. Mm-hmm. I don't see screaming. I don't see, you know, every once in a while you gotta say what you gotta say. Mm-hmm. But you save it usually for the locker room. Typically that's where you where where if you're gonna yeah, be loud, you're gonna be loud. Probably have the but <laughs> during the game, I don't know if it's intentional. It mm-hmm. feels intentional, but it also feels natural. Mm-hmm. That you know that they're watching you too. Mm-hmm. And that if you flip, that if you get exasperated, if you get too emotional when it's good, yeah that they're going to respond to that too. Is that, I mean, it, it, like I said, it seems natural, that's who you are. Mm-hmm. But are you also conscious of that? No, I don't think I, I, I don't put much effort in it because I think if we're talking about in the game, mm-hmm. I think the game is not played on Friday. The game is played Monday through Thursday. And whatever team prepares the best and follows those details of the game plan and plays with the most heart and the most passion and not emotion is going to win. You know, we always preach to our players here, don't be so emotional, become passionate. Right? Because people always say don't make an emotional decision. Don't react emotionally. React passionately. So... When our players play, then it's refreshing to see, even if we if we lose, that they're still trying their hardest, right? And that's all we can ask them to do. I am very accepting of when the clock hits zero, is either one or two things that's gonna happen. Either we're gonna win the game, or we're gonna lose the game. But at the end of each of those sentences, it says the game. It's only a game, right? Now, with me, how you do it means a lot more yes. than what we do. So we could we could win a game, and you could be you could be getting cussed out from A to Z when you're getting back in. Now we played a team last year in the playoffs, and we probably scored seventy points, and they was getting they was getting it handed to them after because it surprised them. Right, how they did it. Right, it's all about how you do it. You know, you gotta win with humility. And sometimes we fall short on that. You know, they deal with they dealt with the laws, how they gonna deal with it. You know, they sometimes for some it was a little too serious. For some, you know, they used it as comical because that's how they deal with loss. You know, so the person who's dealing with it comically can't relate to the person who's dealing with it emotionally, mm-hmm. right? So that becomes the tug of war right there. So how you bridge that? You tell them like, man, listen, it's just a game. At the end of the day, it's your teammate. You tried your best. It's not like they did it on purpose. You know, just just go out there and play your best and play your hardest. And you know, for the for ninety nine percent 
of the games I've coached here, all the players played the hardest. And any player that I didn't coach from 2006 all the way to, to now, I tell you that winning the championship don't hold no substance of value for me. You know, I get more enjoyment watching them enjoy it than me enjoying it myself. For me, when we won the state championship in 2012, it was all about, you know, how you get back. I remember. I remember. I remember uh, watching you. I remember the post game comments. Mm -hmm. And it's it's never been about like again for you. It's about that journey. It's about that destination. It's the how. Mm -hmm. It's the how. How did we end up at this point? And don't forget that process of how you got here. Because these things are applicable. You showed up every day. You committed to your assignment. You trusted your teammate. You did your job. They did their job, and it paid off. That's it. I mean, it, it, that's life. That's life. When you come into work, right? Yeah. You come in, you show up, and you come in, you do your work. You expect your other coaches that they've done their assignments mm-hmm. that you put on them. And when they show up at practice, you trust in them to do their jobs. You yeah. can't stand over their shoulders and make yeah. sure he did this and they did that. It's going to come out. It's going to show up in whether or not they did the work. Yeah. And you, like, you deal with the outcomes when it's time to deal with the outcomes. No doubt. You know, it was very different. Um, man, we had been going to the championship so many years in a row. And then last year, you know, it was just like, boom, it's over, right? To be on the other side of it was humbling, was, was, was probably needed, right? Because... In athletics, winning creates so much complacency. You don't even know that it's complacent because you're winning, right? But when you lose, it makes you become consistent at the things that you're not doing consistently, right? So losing, you 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 get to pinpoint what went wrong a lot more than when you win. When you win, it was like, oh, he did that, but guess what? He made the play. But then if you lose and he did that, it's like, look, we have to correct that, right? So that's what we're in. We're in a correction. You know, and sometimes here at Carr, you know how the quarterback is is the almost a, a superhero in everybody's mind, right? So, you know, dealing with Munchie and Tonka and Speedy and, you know, Kerry and, and, and Alden – and Scholar and Leonard and now AJ, you know, all of them have this one thing in common is that they want to win so bad, right? Because number one, they're natural competitors. And number two, they came here to do that, right? So that's a lot of pressure on a, on a 16, 17-year-old kid. I can never forget Munchie Lego last game, and it's crazy. I can remember his last game was against Salmon in the quarterfinals. And we got back to school, and he sat in the locker room with his full uniform on. He was sitting at a bench uh, on one of the racks, and he said, I said, what's wrong? I said, man, you played a good game. You know, Simon won in overtime. And uh, we missed the extra point to go into the next overtime. 
I said, man, what's wrong? He said, man, I didn't accomplish either of my goals. I didn't, I'm not going to the University of Florida and I didn't win the state championship. And this kid basically put called back on the map. Mm-hmm. He started it back up. Yep. He he made us transition to from split veer in I formation to this offense and what you see today, this spread, you know, averaging fifty points a game attack, right? And he's he's sitting there thinking he's unsuccessful. And as a coach, you can remember those moments because it's not true. It's not true at all. He never went to the state championship game, yes. But he's probably one of the best quarterbacks to ever play in the New Orleans area. Not probably. Ain't no problem. Yeah. <laughs> so how we measure the success is so different. And, you know, sometimes, you know, these, these players, and they got Leonard who won back-to-back. Right? Because just just so happened, you know, it fell his way in that particular time. You know, where the pieces or the, the team was a little bit better, the continuity probably was better, the coaching probably was a little bit better, right? So, you know, and I and I and I hope um you know, AJ worked so hard, I you know, I hope he finishes last year, especially achieving what he's trying to achieve because he reminds you of all of the, all of those great quarterbacks. If it's if it's Alden, if it's Speedy, if it's if it's Tonka, you know it, the 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 famous picture of Tonka hugging Coach Luca after the game. You know, in overtime we lost that state championship, and um, in that moment he thought he wasn't successful, and here he is this legendary, revered player who who is celebrated every day. And everybody wants to win the number five, right? And he didn't win a state championship. You know, so the legacy that they're leaving here is sometime the championship for me. You know, it might not be good enough. I know it's not good enough for them. You know, they want to win. Right. Right? But... It's different forms of winning. It's different forms of being a champion. I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've had teams that didn't win championships that are better than some of the ones that did. Mm-hmm. And it just did, like you said, it just didn't play out that way. It yeah, just I, didn't would, I would never probably get to say that publicly. Who was the best? Yeah, don't, yeah, don't say it because they'll start calling yeah, and then they'll be like, oh, how you going to talk about us like that? But all those teams have their own stamp, right? And But I can say what each team has had. Since we've been here, each team has had heart of lions. Um, even though some of, of the teams didn't win the state championship, I didn't go. There were still, still great teams. They were still great players. Still people doing great things. You know, Cornelius Lucas never played in the state championship, and here he's still playing in the NFL, right? He's still successful. Just because he's taking on um, the core values and beliefs that he's learned here. Right? So, it's different forms of being a champion. It's different forms of being a winner. For them, you know, they're 16, 17, 18 years old. They don't understand that. They'll know this 10 years from now. Right? They'll listen to those. They'll they'll hear those voices in in those speeches 
sometimes when they're sitting at home by themselves. It's not what you do. It's how you do it. Lastly, what would it take? Is there something that would make you say, I've, I've done enough here at Carr, or do you live in the moment? And you just, are you doing this as long as it feels right? Um, I would say in 2015, if it was just lying, right? Mm-hmm. I was so far from that line of saying I'm done that I, I couldn't even see it. But I wouldn't lie to you and tell you that I'm inching closer to that line. And right, we don't know that you you don't know that you cross the line until you cross it, right? But sometimes, you know, on any particular day, you could feel that you're one step away from crossing the line to go into the other side, or any other day you say, ah, oh, let's take ten steps back, right? It all it's it's. It's not as calculated as you think. It's uh, it's more on. You'll know. Is what we're doing still effective? When it's not effective, then it's time. The day you wake up and you say, "I'm not supposed to be doing this for these kids. I'm not the one. I can't reach these. Not not in a negative way, mm-hmm. but it's not my voice that they need to hear anymore. Yeah, it needs to be new or fresh. Yeah. Then, but until then, you wake up with the same. Excitement, the same determination, the same every day. It depends on what day it is. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on what meeting I have to go to. Right. Depend on no man. It depends, man. You know, it, it's it depends. You love it, but you don't always like it. It's uh, it's a great job. Is it? Um, can you enjoy the job? I don't think so. You got to live it. Yeah. Because, man, and i tell you this story. I know we're wrapping up. Mm-hmm. We won a state championship. It was 2019. And we're in the locker room. We're celebrating. And Nick Foster, dad, passed. As soon as we got to the school. Right? And Nick is my best friend. Right? He was my he was my assistant coach, but he was my best friend too. And then boom. Gotta go with him to the hospital. Right? So can you truly enjoy it, right? So that night, yeah you were a state champion, but you watch number one, your best friend and you're basically your assistant head coach, you know, at his weakest time, right? And where you have to flip from celebrating with the players to consoling the coach. Is it a good job? Is it a great job? But it comes with a with a price. And the price that you pay to be successful in this job is your availability. That you always have to be available to each and everyone. Because when they come to you, they're looking for an answer. And sometimes 
you don't even know sometimes what the hell they're talking about about this this certain incident or this particular somebody said this you don't know what they're talking about they're just coming at you because they think you know everything right so man coach I think this has been a fantastic conversation mm -hmm. and I appreciate your time yeah. so much man no problem